We're in 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19. As we look at trials, trials and tribulations, again, uh, there's such a continuous theme throughout the entire letter of 1 Peter about him addressing those in the church about what it means to struggle and suffer for the sake of Christ and the purposes of God's work in our lives through trial and suffering. Would you please stand this morning to honor the Lord as we read his word together. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So verse 12 Beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. Do not be surprised when struggle and trial enters your life. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. Even a common man knows this. I just performed a wedding on this stage here yesterday. It was a beautiful wedding. But part of all of the vows of weddings are for better and for what? Worse. Every young couple up here doesn't think anything, it's, it's all going to be roses, but the people that wrote those vows know that there's going to be struggle that comes, and so we should be prepared for these things. And we are told here in the scriptures very clearly that we should not be surprised when trials come upon us. And so to begin this sermon this morning, I want to bring a differentiation between trial and temptation. It's very important that you understand the difference between what it means to enter into a trial and go through a trial and what it means to enter into temptation because they are not the same things. A trial, as we will see this morning, is testing that is brought into our life by God to prove the genuine nature of our faith. We're going to spend the majority of our time talking about that this morning because that's what this passage is aiming at. But temptation is an effort to draw a person into sin. Temptation is an effort to draw a person into sin. That temptation might come from the corruption of your own heart. It might come from another person outside of you. Or it might come from some evil influence outside of you. It can come from various things. But God's will is to test us, but God will not ever tempt us. Let me say that again. God will definitely test you, but God will never tempt you. If we turn back a few pages to the book of James, you see in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Uh, James 1, 13 and 14 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so the idea here, very clearly, is that God does not tempt anyone. You are not tempt- when you are tempted, it is not by God. And there's a descending order here and elsewhere in Scripture as to how temptation comes to us. And the most common way that temptation comes to you is from the corruption of your own heart. We're all born sinners, and we're all born with a corrupt nature. And all these terrible things that are possible are resident somewhere in our heart, and they creep up at the most inopportune times of weakness where we feel tempted from our own heart to do something that we know that we should not do. And so temptation comes from our own heart, It also comes from the world at large. If you've got all this sin bound up in your own heart and you put millions and millions of sinners together, you end up with an even worse situation where everybody is pulling each other down instead of lifting each other up. And so temptation comes to us from other people as well. But then thirdly, there are real spiritually evil beings in this world. The Bible talks about demons, talks about a real Satan. And so there is real evil influence in our lives as well. I think that the way that temptation comes to us is in the order I've presented it, though. Some people think that the majority of temptation coming into your life is somehow related to some evil spirit. I don't believe that's the case. I believe most of it is coming from your own heart and then from the people around you, and then it's given an extra push by those real evil beings in this world. And so we must be aware of temptation and struggling against it in all cases. And so an important part of understanding temptation is what God does for those who are his in temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 says this, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's a very, very important verse. It says that God is watching out for us. He is faithful and he is tempering the temptation that will come upon you and never allow you to be overwhelmed with something that is impossible for you to bear. But he is actively, because God is faithful, providing a way of escape of that temptation. And so in coming to salvation in Christ, the enslaving power of sin is broken so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. And God, our Father, who is faithful and merciful, is watching over our lives and always making a way for us to escape these temptations because he loves us and cares for us. And so that's a little bit about temptation. But temptation and trial are not the same thing. God's working and purposes in bringing trials into our life are different than us being tempted. No one is surprised by temptation for some reason. Everybody realizes that temptation is going to come into your life. But it is the regular pattern of people to be shocked when trials come into their lives. All the time as a pastor, I'm asked, why would this ever happen to me? How could God let this happen to me? Well, this passage this morning is a very important passage about this. This is why God allows trials to come into your life. He allows them to come into your life to strengthen your faith, that your faith might be proven genuine, as we'll see here this morning. 
Why would God allow these things to happen to me? This should not be a strange thing to us. Testing and trials. I wrote in the newsletter this past week, I put Psalm 11 in the newsletter. And one of the verses from Psalm 11 is verse 5. Psalm 11 verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous. It's a a basic unequivocal statement. The Lord tests the righteous. Do any of us want to be tested in our faith? I don't. I don't enjoy being tested in my faith because it involves a stretching and a growing of my faith to meet or come into this test. But I want us to flip back a few pages because this is not a new theme for Peter. It's sort of where he begins in 1 Peter chapter 1 and where he's wrapping up in 1 Peter chapter 4. If we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, some months ago I preached uh, about this in a similar way. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Amen. That's right. So it says that trials will come to us as needed, and they will come because they have been brought to us, and the purpose, as it says in verse 7, is the tested genuineness of your faith. It's here and in both places, in, uh, let's see, chapter 4, verse 13, I guess, I'm sorry, verse 12, beloved, be not surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. I think most often when we think of a fiery trial, we just think of like a very intense trial. But I believe there's more going on here because the first chapter of Peter talks about more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. It's the analogy of being refined by fire in an old school concept of taking an alloy and burning it to where the dross is burned away and separated and only the precious metal remains. And so it is a, an example to us of going through intense struggle to purify the nature of our soul. And that the Lord is working his purpose in these things. The purpose is to test the genuine nature of our faith and see it strengthened by God. I think the greatest example of this, at least the first major significant example of this, is in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is where God calls Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. And so it says in Genesis chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham. So Abraham was old at this point in time. God had made promises to him, promised a son. They waited a long time. Finally, the son is born. And so he's going to test him in his faith with that thing which is most precious to him, which is his long-awaited promised son. And so the scripture says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Which is very strange, because this is completely out of character for God. And this is not like what God would ask or has ever asked anyone to do. 
But Abraham believed God and he went by faith to follow after the Lord. And we're given insight into this in Hebrews chapter 11 as to Abraham's attitude as to what was going to happen here. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your, offering, oh yeah, shall, your, shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. If you know the story... Isaac is there on this altar and, and Abraham's about to strike him and kill him and the Lord calls out from heaven to stop him and provides a ram there that the ram might be put in his place. And Abraham could have no idea at this point in time the symbolism of what was happening here. This is this great symbolic act of what God the Father is going to do with God the Son of giving his own son as a sacrifice and yet Isaac is spared and Abraham is faithful. In this great test of his faith, he passes, and he goes through it, and he becomes stronger in his faith for what he has done to believe God and act by faith, not knowing what the Lord's end purposes were, which is, by the way, what it means to live by faith. We don't know what the end of God's purposes are in our life. We are called everywhere in the scripture, from the Old Testament to the Gospels to the letters of the New Testament, to walk by faith, to believe God, to act on what God has told us, and to trust him for the future. And we're going to see that even at the end of our passage today, where it tells us to entrust ourselves to God by faith. And so when we go to verse 13 here in our passage before us this morning, it tells us, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. So we have here two different types of trials. We have a general trial and then we have sufferings for Christ. The general trials of life are spoken of often in the scriptures. I think one of the greatest places to look for this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul talks about his own life. He's going back and recounting the issues of his life and all of the unbelievable hardship and struggle that his life entailed. If you haven't read 2 Corinthians 11, go back and read it. I don't know what people think that Paul's life was like, but his life was one constant enduring trial as the Lord purified his faith and radically strengthened him to be the person that he would have him to be. But in the general trial category for Paul, there were hardships of journeys, shipwrecked three times, crossing rivers, robbers, wild animals, sleepless nights, constant hunger and thirst. That's an interesting one, to think of him regularly being without enough food or, th or, or water. You see, he talks about being without shelter, exposed, living a homeless life at certain times, anxiety for the churches. These are all general struggles, general trials that were a part of the life of Paul that the Lord used to cause Paul to constantly rely upon him and walk by faith and see his needs provided for. But then there is the more specific, which is spoken of in verse 14, insulted for the name of Christ. Paul was 
certainly in this category as well. They're from the same chapter of 2 Corinthians 11. He talks about how he is countless times imprisoned. He'd been imprisoned and beaten for the name of Jesus and preaching the gospel so many times he couldn't remember how many times it was. Five times he had been given the 40 lashes, which is the maximum that you could be given without them thinking that you would die. And so five times he had been whipped to this degree for the sake of preaching the gospel. Three times beaten with rods, one time stoned, which we'll read that passage in a little while. Danger from the Gentiles, danger from false brothers, and finally dying a martyr's death. This is what Paul did. This was the life and ministry of Paul. It was not an easy ministry. It was not a ministry where everything was provided for him in a lavish, special place, and he got up on a pulpit and, and came and easily preached the gospel and then went back to a life of luxury. This was not at all the ministry of Paul. It was a ministry that was constantly marked by trials, struggles, and sufferings. But through these things, his faith became something radically strong that strengthened countless people in coming to know Christ Jesus in the building up of the churches. In both of these trials, we will share in the life of the sufferings of Jesus, blessed to be persecuted for association with Jesus. We know from reading about the life of Jesus that Jesus also did not live a lavish life. He was in the streets with the everyday people. He was a person that lived a simple and plain life. And of course, in the end, suffered greatly even unto death for our sake. And Peter is again speaking here to how when we live in a similar way, we are joining with Christ in his sufferings. We are sharing in some way with the sufferings of Christ because we are called to walk in the steps of Jesus. We're called to walk in the way that he walked, in the manner of life that he lived. And we should not be surprised that we enter into the same struggles and similar sufferings as Jesus did. In verse 15, it says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. And so Peter's clear here that what trials from God are not are things that you have brought on yourself by your own sin. So if we go back to temptation and you give in to temptation, you do something terrible, and because of that you're punished for what you have done, that is not a trial from the Lord. That's just punishment for your own sins, and that's really a, a sermon for another day in some ways. God can teach us, certainly, and grow us through those things, but we should not consider that a trial from God. A trial from the Lord is when we examine our lives and may, perhaps we even ask others to help examine us and you say, what is going on here? Like, I can't understand this. Is there some unrepentant sin in my life? And godly people come to you and say, no, I, I, I don't see anything here. Let me just pray for you that your faith might be strengthened. It's not something you've brought on yourself. It's something that God is bringing upon you for his purposes, though you may not understand them at all in the time that you're going through them. And so verse 16 is really a summary. Uh, it, it, it gets to this point, and I want to kind of go back and summarize how it is that we should react to the trials that come into our life. So verse 16 says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
And so if we go back and look from verses 12 to 16 and we think about how is it that I should be reacting to the trials that God brings into my life, the first is that, verse 12, we should not be surprised. Verse 13 tells us twice that we should rejoice. First, we should rejoice that you might share in the sufferings of Christ, that we would actually be joyful that something is coming into our life that God is bringing into our life to test and strengthen our faith. A second time in verse 13, rejoice that you are drawing closer to heavenly glory. And we're gonna get to this in, in, a, in a moment here because there's a separation between the righteous and the ungodly. And every time you pass through a trial and your faith is strengthened and your hope in Christ Jesus is strengthened, what it is is it's one step closer to glory. It's one step closer to the ultimate and final purposes of God in your life and you should rejoice in that. Verse 14, that we should consider ourselves blessed to be insulted for our association with Jesus Christ. And then verse 16, that we should not be ashamed to be a Christian as trials come upon us. In a passage about trials, don't be surprised, rejoice, rejoice, you're blessed, don't be ashamed. Like that, that's not our natural reaction to trials that come into our lives. That's why we need the scriptures to teach us what our reaction should be to these struggles that come into our lives. And so often we ask why questions. And I'll be very honest that the Bible does not answer a lot of the why questions. Many people will ask me why for certain things and I cannot answer them exactly. But we can answer with confidence why the Lord brings trials into our lives. Again, if you turn back a few pages to James chapter one, this is a counterpart passage to what Peter is teaching here. It shouldn't surprise us that we see very similar teaching in different books because God is working the same thing out and teaching it through various authors. So in James chapter one, verses two through four, we see this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So again, joy, an attitude of joy when God brings a trial into your life because it's something that is refining you and causing your faith to be strengthened. What it is ultimately producing, as James is so clear, is steadfastness. So when you ask, why in the world would God allow a trial of, of whatever sort into my life? You can be confident that the answer is to increase your faith that it might grow steadfast. So let's, let's look at this a bit here. There is a cycle to this, a cycle of growth related to this. When some hardship comes into your life, and I know of many of you in this room right now that are in the middle of this, Whatever hardship it may be, whether it is something that is physical, something that is financial, something that's related to job loss or needing a job, something that's related to loneliness, it can be so many things. But when this hardship enters your life and you are confident that it is not because of your sin and it is something that is something else is going on, we are called to first hope in Christ Jesus. Our first reaction can be anger towards God and pointing fingers and making blame towards the Lord. But instead, we hope in God. We continue to pray and be dependent upon him, waiting for an answer in time, and an answer will come in time. 
A beautiful story I heard yesterday, a person related to this wedding, just in tears telling me about the six years that they waited for a child. They could not have a child for a long time and they prayed and they prayed and they kept hoping in the Lord and they kept asking independence for a child and they kept waiting in time. Six years is a long time to wait for something. It's a long time to pray for something. But this, this couple was just openly rejoicing many years after the answer of that request, still giving glory to God for answering their prayer in a way that they did not expect for it to be. And so it strengthened their faith. And then what will happen is hardship will come into your life again. Trial will come again. And I tell you, the next time, it will be easier to hope in Jesus. It will be easier to pray and depend on him. It will be easier to wait on him. And when he answers that prayer, it will strengthen your faith. And the older you get, and the longer you walk with Jesus, and the more that you pray to him, and the more that you seek him, and the more you're willing to wait on him, the stronger and the stronger your faith will be until it becomes steadfast. And I hope that you know some people like that in your life that they are unwavering regardless of what trial comes into their life. They somehow are able to rejoice and ride above it all and to give thanks when they're mocked for Jesus' name. These are people that have reached a place of, of great strength in their faith. And that's a place where all of us can and will reach as we pass through trials and the Lord works his purposes in our lives. And I think we understand this in a most basic way in the daily world around us, we understand that personal growth, relational growth, and physical growth all come through trial and struggle. When you look at personal growth and you see the people that are the strongest in their person, they did not get that way from being spoiled and having everything given to them without labor and without effort. Those people that are given a life like that tend to be the most selfish, the most character lacking, difficult people to be around. You just because they have no personal growth, because they had no struggle. But when people struggle, I love Ben Carson's life story. If you've never read it, I encourage you to go read it. A person that grew up out of the ghettos of Detroit and ends up in the, the head of neurosurgery at John Hopkins University. It's a story of the work of the Lord in a person's life and a mother's persevering faith through trial. It's an incredible journey, but it's a journey of personal growth through struggle. Relational growth, we know it's the same thing. Getting together and just watching movies with people does not build relational growth like going through shared struggle together. Part of the deep relationships of this church are people that have struggled together to see this place come about. Literally painting the walls and, and building these things and worshiping together and practicing together and serving together in projects, caring for our needy and our widows and orphans and all these types of things. That the shared struggle of serving Christ together will bind you and give you relational growth unlike any other thing. And it's the same with physical growth. We don't grow physically by sitting on the couch eating popcorn and watching movies. You've got to get out and run, and you've got to go to the gym, something like that. There's got to be effort and trial and struggle, and from it comes growth. And so steadfast growth of faith in the soul will not come from a life of ease and self-indulgence and getting what you want when you want it. Let me say that one more time, because there are some people that will tell you just the opposite. Steadfast growth of faith in the soul will not come from a life of ease and self-indulgence and getting what you want when you want it. 
It will, however, come through a constant stream of God-ordained trials that God purposefully, according to his will and according to his plans and his purposes, bringing trial into your life to stress you and cause you to come to him in prayer and get on your knees and hope in him and him providing at, a, at an appointed time to build up and strengthen your faith and help you to become aware that God is real and that he is involved in your life. And so I want to read to us from Acts chapter 14, another word from the suffering apostle Paul. This is his stoning experience that I read about earlier. Acts 14 verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. And entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Did you hear what I just read there? He was stoned and they dragged him out to the end of this edge of the city assuming that he was dead. And he gets up by the strength of the Lord, keeps preaching, goes out and then comes back to that city to the believers that are there to strengthen them and encourage them and tell them that they will only enter the kingdom of God through great trial and struggle. Those that would tell you today that we will enter the, God, enter the kingdom of God through great ease and self-indulgence are lying to you. The scriptures tell us that through trial, the Lord will refine our life to become something that we never knew that we could be beforehand. And it's not arbitrary. It's part of the sovereign work of the Lord in our lives to transform us from what we used to be into something that we never knew that we could be. And it's a beautiful transformation. Well, in 1 Peter, I'm sorry, back to 1 Peter chapter 4, it gets into a, a separating phase. It says, for it is a time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Language of separating unto judgment, those who obey the gospel and those who remain ungodly and rebellious. And, but it begins, what is unusual about this passage is that it begins with the household of God. It begins with those who call themselves Christians or call themselves believers. There is an interesting passage that is similar to this in the Old Testament. It's from Ezekiel chapter 9. Uh, we don't have time to read the whole passage this morning, but I would encourage you to take a look at it later. In Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel is giving a word from the Lord about judgment against Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become evil, violent, perverse, godless, all these things. And in this prophetic word, the Lord is calling for executioners to come into Jerusalem. He calls six executioners to come to destroy the wicked. But before they go into the city, it's told that they ought to go in and mark the righteous, those whose hearts are grieved by the sin of the city. And those who are the Lord's are spared, and those who are not are destroyed. Every man, woman, elderly person, every person that is rebellious in their heart against the Lord and refuses to repent. But what is interesting is that in verse 6, it says that this great judgment is to begin in the sanctuary of the Lord with the elders of Jerusalem, with those that are claiming to be spiritual leaders of the people but are not, 
but are misleading the people and are leading the people into ungodliness and are part of the problem, that the Lord begins the judgment there and works it out to purify his people. And so these last few verses here are a wake-up call that being religious outwardly but lacking true repentance in the heart will not lead to salvation. Only true-hearted in faith, true-hearted faith that endures through trials is proven to be a true faith. And so I would ask you to look at your own life. I don't know where you are right now. But verse 19 is the closure to all of this. It's a very important verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, so not suffering for your own sin, but suffering according to something that God has brought into your life that was unforeseen by you, will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so this is where we must be. If you are in the midst of some great trial right now, I encourage you to entrust yourself to God. And believe that he is faithful and believe that he is good and that he will help you and that he will see you through this hard time and that he has some purpose for it and it will radically strengthen your faith. If you are not in a time of trial now, you're in a time of great thanksgiving and joy. Be glad for that. Be thankful for times like that. But know that the Lord will bring trial into your life because he loves you and he wants to strengthen your faith. And he will accomplish his purposes in your life. So as you go through the struggle, keep doing what is good. And this is a part of why we gather together here today, brothers and sisters, is that as a gathered church, we might encourage one another on towards love and good deeds. That's what the scriptures say. There are people in this congregation this morning that need your encouragement. I'll say, as we often say, before you leave this place, speak with someone else around you and encourage them. Pray for them. We need each other's help as we walk this journey and the Lord refines all of us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you are our faithful creator, as the scriptures say. From the very beginning, you have had purposes and plans for our lives and you are bringing us to yourself. I pray, Lord, for those here this morning that may not know you as Savior, And Lord, the trials and the struggles in their life seem to be hopeless and endless and something that is just dragging them down to death. I pray, Father, that they would reach out to you for hope this morning, that they would confess their sins and that they would believe in Christ Jesus and that they would trust that God has a different plan and a different way and that you would strengthen their faith and they would find you to be faithful and that they would be able to rest in your peace and in your love and in your truth. Lord, be with us today. Help us to bear one another's burdens and help us through these difficult times as we seek Christ Jesus, as we seek a steadfastness of faith that results in joy. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.